From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. We don't want you to miss important news. And so today, a preview of the big issues to track at the legislature, which reconvenes next week, and a look at stories that may have flown under your radar during the holidays. We're joined by CPR political editor Megan Verlee and Dana Caulfield, editor at the Colorado Sun. Also today, a veteran blinded in Iraq skis, climbs, and kayaks, and gets other wounded vets to do the same. Well, I think moving is living. I think you can reestablish a new normal by exploring what's possible with the body that you have. Plus, an old cookbook from the San Luis Valley with recipes for sopapillas and bizcochitos. It has sent memories flooding back. Because it's going home. So many people had to leave the valley for generations, for work, for education, uh, like to survive. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. We're at the start of a new year and a new decade, although there's fierce debate over whether the decade actually starts next year. And speaking of fierce debate, the Colorado legislature reconvenes next week. And with a preview, we're joined by CPR's political editor, Megan Verley. Megan, welcome to the show. Hey, Ryan. We'll also widen this 2020 preview beyond the state capitol from the Colorado Sun editor, Dana Caulfield's also here. Hi, Donna. Happy New Year. Same to you. I have to say this period between Thanksgiving and New Year's is a blur for me. I know this is a time many people unplug from the news and they may be re-emerging with, of course, concerns globally now with Iran staring us in the face. Uh, But what local stories from the last few weeks are going to continue to have an impact? Megan? Well, I think one thing you might have kind of blinked and missed if you were not super checked into the news the last six weeks or so is that we are starting to see a lot of Democratic presidential candidates popping up in Colorado. Tom Steyer, uh, Michael Bloomberg, um, uh, Amy Klobuchar all came, uh, I think, since Halloween. And that is because Colorado is going to hold its first in a very long time presidential primary this year on Super Tuesday. Those ballots actually go out um, almost days after New Hampshire and Iowa. Yeah. Uh, and so the candidates are paying attention to the state, which is one thing that, that backers of moving to a, a presidential primary said would happen and, and is actually, in fact, now happening. That's right. Colorado was not always a Super Tuesday state. This was moved up with the idea of what? Just flex more political muscle? I think the real motivation, especially for the voters who approve this, is to have a role in the process. As a caucus state, uh, you had to go somewhere on a Tuesday night, uh, often in the cold, to have a say in this very convoluted process about that eventually determined where Colorado's presidential elect, uh, or rather nominating um, delegates went. Now you just return your ballot in March and you'll have a say in who Colorado supports uh, for the Republican or Democratic candidate for president. Okay, more than a dozen laws went into effect January 1st. What are some of the highlights there, Dana? I think one of the biggest talkers this year is going to be the red flag bill. This is the law that allows uh, law enforcement or concerned families to petition the court um, to remove guns from um, people who are, have been deemed to be a threat to themselves or others. Massive controversy statewide. Um, You've got sheriffs who say uh, they yeah, won't enforce I mean, it. Well, we've uh, some counties have declared themselves gun sanctuary counties where this um, won't occur. And so it'll be interesting to see how it's deployed. And we were going right down to the wire about um, how 
the DAs were actually going to be able to handle this. Um, we were even missing some paperwork that needed to be filled out as recently as two weeks ago. So it's still a little bit in process, but um, we, I shouldn't say we look forward to seeing how it works, but we do we look will forward to watching, watching it for sure. Well, and it's proof that a controversial law doesn't stop being controversial once it's debated and passed. In other words, that debate continues. Uh, Megan, I know that we also saw a new law about surprise billing. Is this going to eliminate every surprise <laughs> in I, billing? I, I cannot imagine that it will, but it is a pretty significant step for the state. This is a, a debate that is now being waged nationally in Congress with hundreds of millions of dollars being spent by physicians groups and hospital groups uh, that want to keep this ability to send balance bills to, to customers or customers to patients. Uh, customers might be the right word, though, uh, who receive services from out-of-network uh, professionals. Uh, in Colorado, though, this was an issue that was really championed uh, by Nine News and some other media outlets came to the fore, um, and this law should bring a lot more transparency to this process. What are we looking at as well uh, in new laws? I know you're uh, following down a stuff around labor. Well, a little bit. It was kind of a big year for um, labor um, in terms in particular of our um, minimum wage laws and how people are treated in terms of being paid for overtime. And so there's still a lot of chaos around uh, the increase of minimum wage um, statewide and we're, we're done ticking up um, in the state, but the city of Denver is going to tick up a little bit further here. And there's been a lot of debate over whether that is com contributing to economic stability or instability for businesses. So again, that's another of those laws where we're just not sure what the consequences are after the hyperbole has kind of settled down. And that's really only one of a couple of things that have happened for workers on the lower end of the economic scale. Mm. So uh, the Department of Labor just finalized some overtime rules that are going to, for instance, uh, bring overtime uh, and, and and rest guarantees to construction workers. They don't go as far as some people would like. They don't cover uh, ag workers, for instance. Uh, there's also a new law that uh, really increases the penalty for wage theft if your employer uh, doesn't pay you what they owe you. Um, and the state just started a program uh, to try to um, pay for the medical bills of workers who get injured uh, while working for somebody who doesn't have workers' comps. So uh, on a lot of different fronts, we're seeing new things in the new year to help uh, workers in particular and those in maybe lower income fields. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are talking about, well, the news you might have missed over the holidays and the big news on the horizon as the legislative session gears up, as new laws go into effect. I'll just say that the, the state minimum wage right now is 12 bucks. That's where it's raised to in recent years. And let's talk about the state legislature back in session January 8th. What are you hearing about this upcoming session? Are there themes in legislation or like a tone you expect, Megan, you edit our political coverage. <laughs> well, I think tone wise, and this has been an interesting debate between myself and Benta Berkland, our very veteran state house reporter. Um, she is hearing that the tone is going to be rough. You know, we had all these unsuccessful recall efforts against Democrats in the off season. Democrats have not forgotten that. Um, we've had, uh, there's an impeachment going on in Washington that I think is making it harder for Republicans and Democrats at every Every level to talk to each other right now. Mm. And uh, even with an election year looming, uh, Democrats in the state house who control the levers of power have some very ambitious things they still want to get done. Uh, 
And, you know, that can range from things that are sort of popular, like putting more funding into early childhood education, to things that are more controversial, like uh, maybe trying again to reveal the, uh, repeal the death penalty. Uh, what are you seeing when you look at what is ahead for the state legislature, Donna? Well, I was a little surprised to learn from the reporting of our crew um, is that the Republicans are really gal- galvanizing, but they're not um, throwing out everything that they're um, thinking that they're going to bring forth. They're waiting until the session starts. They'll have some sort of press conference. The one thing we do know and anticipate is that they're um, going to try and lead on education finance reform and other education issues. And um, I think as you um may have seen earlier or yesterday, um, the Interim Committee on Education Finance, after working for three years and then working all summer and saying that they were going to have this grand plan um, to reform the way we we fund education statewide, pulled back and said they hadn't enough time, the situation had become too political, and they weren't going to start this session with a bill um, that they also were concerned that they didn't understand the financial implications of all the changes yeah, they were proposing. Let's so. speak to the fundamentals of this. I mean, I think that the the fear is that there is not uh, equality between among districts in what uh, they receive per pupil, Correct. whether that's fair or not. And that's the, the kind of sticky wicket that the legislature uh, may still tackle then without this well, kind of a huge bill. Well, I think the the hard thing is that no district is going to stand up and say, you know what, we get too much money. We should we should send that on to our neighbors. And so the stakes are huge. And every lawmaker, ha- they either have a district that is leaning on them to bring in more money or they have a district leaning on them not to lose money. Um, so this is this was probably the, one of the hardest things they could have taken on. And now that there's not an interim committee bill, the real distinction is we might very well see a Republican proposal and a Democratic proposal. Mm-hmm. It's much less likely now that we will see a bipartisan solution. And to this. we should be quite clear that Democrats are in control in both chambers and, of course, uh, the governor's seat as well. Uh, beyond the legislature, I'd love for each of you to tell me something else that's on your mind in this first week of 2020, Megan. Um, this is, you know, I I noticed people when they were talking about the upcoming year, there's sort of this doom and gloom and, oh, we're going to have to go through an election. And, oh, you know, and, and so I have found the one positive thing that everybody, no matter their political outlook or anything else, can agree on. And that is that almost every holiday in 2020 falls either on a Friday or a Saturday. Three-day weekends. Exactly. It's going to be a year of three, Fourth of July, Halloween. Uh, it's all uh, three-day weekends. Yeah, these midweek holidays were really... Unmooring this season. Dana, there's a story that you want to point to (laughs) that has to do with apples. Is that right? Yes. Um, We learned um, last week that a long-lost heritage apple had been rediscovered in an orchard near Canyon City. And that doesn't... It is such a tender story about these two firefighters down in Montezuma County who have spent the past five years doing genetic testing of all of this massive... Um, archive of remnant remnant trees around Colorado, and they were on the hunt for this apple, found one that they thought it was, compared actual fruit on this poor tree that's down to one limb, and discovered a cache of wax 
um, replicas of apples and confirmed that they had found this Colorado orange apple. And if you're patient, in two years, you should be able to actually buy a tree that will bear this historic apple. Oh, wow. That Rem- is exciting. Remnant trees. And th- these are just, what, sprinkling the state? Well, I mean, we all have them in our historic neighborhoods, like some random apple tree that you don't know what it is. And there are a lot of um, genetic researchers around at the University of Colorado, CSU, and these independent people down in Montezuma County who have been collecting um, pieces, doing genetic testing, and trying to figure out sort of the Johnny Appleseed project. You know, apples were um, the great uniter of the West, and you could bring your apples in your saddlebag, you could dry them, you could make cider. It is a history of Western expansion. Uh, Meanwhile, the sun is also looking at... uh Demographics in Colorado, something of the long view, Mm -hmm. and at what Coloradans really care about, seems like a nice note to start 2020 on. What can you tell us about what you found? Well, what we learned is, and I know you hate it when I write things down, but I've written this down. um, This year, we're expected to hit a population of 5,842,076 people. Give us the number one more time. It flew by me. Okay. Five, eight, four, two. So 5.8 million people. That's an increase of 1.5 million people over the past two decades. Um, To the political part of it, 91% of those people moved to the Front Range. Mm -hmm. Only about 9% moved to um, the Western South slope and other locations. So when we hear in the state house people in the um, rural areas saying we don't feel represented, often it's because there is this population right in the center. That's the the distribution Mm -hmm. of it. All right. It's time for our news quiz. And if this, by the way, feels ripped off from Wait, Wait, Don't Mm -hmm. Tell Me, I just want to be very clear that it is. Absolutely. Uh, And this time with the start of the legislative session, we have trivia about Colorado's Capitol building. Right in my wheelhouse. (laughs) (laughs) You were a Capitol reporter for many years, Megan. If you answer correctly, we're going to hear this phrase from Colorado's original state song. Is the land where the columbines grow? Incorrect answers get the sound of a computer reading a bill at five times speed, which a court ruled is against the law. Okay, Megan, uh, you seem very cocksure here. True or false? The state capital is intentionally reminiscent of the U.S. capital. I'm going to have to say true. That is true. Is the land where the Architect Elijah E. Myers had the U.S. Capitol in mind when he designed Colorado's State House. Dana, true or false, there are two different steps at the Capitol labeled as exactly a mile high. Well, there were actually three, Brian. Oh. Mm. I, <laughs> we've, uh, we've changed it. Three times. I, we've changed it three times. It's it's interesting. The Capitol website only says twice. We're going to, too embarrassed to say three. <laughs> well, we're going to give her the true Is sound. The yeah. So here's what I know. The 15th step was engraved with one mile above sea level, but in 69, students at CSU resurveyed the elevation and a second marker was set in the 18th step. But You're, it had been at the 15th. Yeah, but those are two. 15, 13, and 18. Wow. I've got served on my own news quiz. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Megan, underneath the gold leaf of the dome, what, what material is it? Is it steel, copper, or aluminum? Oh, I'm going to miss this one and feel bad. I'm guessing it is copper. 
That's right. Okay, Dana, how is the Colorado capital cooled in the warmer months? Very quickly. By opening the windows in the rotunda? Uh, uh. <laughs> I know this. Geothermal power. Oh, I was going to say that. All right, Dana Caulfield, Megan Verlee, thanks for looking at the year ahead with us. Is the land where the columbines Changes in journalism are coming fast and furious. Newspapers shrinking, appointment watching and listening giving way to streaming and podcasts. Truth is, the field's always been ripe for disruption. Look no further than Westward, known for deep investigations and, let's be honest, weed ads. The Free Denver Weekly recently announced it's offering memberships to people who want to read online without ads. Patty Calhoun gave us the long view. She co-founded the paper in 77. Patty, thank you for being with us. Oh, my pleasure. I want to start way, way back, which is that Westward has always been a free publication. Right. When we started in 77, we never even thought about charging for it. And that was very radical at the time, although other cities had free papers like the Boston Phoenix and the Chicago Reader. We came to Denver and people were like, you're crazy. That's a shopper. It's a throwaway. It's like the thrifty nickel. No one will ever pick it up. No one will ever value it. And so it was a long, hard slog to prove that free has value. How did you prove that? Was it simply the reporting? Well, reporting, advertising, the people who were brave enough to start advertising in a brand new publication and believe we were doing what we said we were going to do, when they saw results, they kept advertising. So you have to prove it. And then Colorado's libel laws are tied into having second-class mailing permits, which are tied into being a paid paper. So we had to instead go to the post office and prove that people want it westward. And once we proved that a certain percentage wanted it and picked it up and signed petitions, we could get a second-class mailing permit. That's fascinating. In other words, the kind of protection that you would get as journalists was dependent very much on the distribution model. This had to have been sort of built around newspapers. Right. Back then. Now, that's a a lot of that has changed now, obviously, because, well, public radio, always free, depending on pledge drives. The internet, so many people are free. There are so many more free publications, too. And Colorado Press Association has changed its membership model because originally it didn't want free papers either. This is 40 years ago, so things have changed a lot. And you're facing now another change. You've added a membership model. Was ad revenue simply not keeping up? Well, we don't actually expect to make that much money on membership, but what we're doing instead is creating an ad-free model. So basically, we want membership for those people to pay for creating the ad-free model. Westward will always be free online, but you get an ad-free Westward. Why are you doing this? For a couple reasons. One, we really wanted to test and see how many loyal readers we had. Forty years ago, we actually tried distribution boxes that had a little coin box, and you could volunteer to pay for it. I think at the end of the year, we'd collected a dollar and a quarter. But we thought in this, we've been here 42 years, maybe people would want to subscribe if they could get an absolutely ad-free version. 
we don't need this revenue to stay open. We need advertising to stay open. We've always paid our way with advertising, whether it's in the print model or online. But we've gotten enough complaints from people who hate all the ads on our online free site that we're like, okay, if you want to pay, we will give you an ad-free model. And we know it can be irritating. We work hard to monitor and get rid of pop-ups or ads that come through like a remnant sale so we don't necessarily know what's getting there. And if it's offensive, we pull it down. But we do have a lot of ads on our site. I wonder if you're getting anyone grousing about this. We are getting grousing from people who can no longer use ad blocker. You can't use ad blocker anymore. So if you're getting Westward for free, you are going to see the ads on digital, just the way you see the ads in print if you pick up the paper. Do you foresee a day when membership becomes as important a stream as ads? It's interesting because there's so much discussion of that in the media world, not just in Colorado, where you have the Colorado Sun starting, where you have Colorado Public Radio growing so much. I don't see that model working the same way for Westward. I think membership will be strong. There'll be a good, solid group of people who just want to support us and not see the ads. But our advertising is important to us, too. It's a completely different community, and it shows you a different part of Denver that you don't see otherwise. Yeah, that's right. There are some pretty colorful ads in Westward. Yes, and a lot of marijuana ads. We don't (laughs) know what that industry would do without us. When I say colorful, I mean green. Yes. (laughs) Patty, thank you for your time. Thank you. Editor Patty Calhoun with The Long View on Westward, which she co-founded in 1977. A contentious plan to expand a limestone limestone quarry, that is, near Glenwood Springs, is going to get a closer look. The Bureau of Land Management says it'll study the possible environmental impact. That decision comes after public outcry and added political pressure. Here's CPR climate reporter Michael Elizabeth Sackis. The proposal by Rocky Mountain Resources would grow its existing 15-acre limestone quarry to 320 acres. Residents of Glenwood Springs are concerned the expansion might impact the town's namesake, its mineral hot springs. In response, the Bureau of Land Management decided to do what's called an environmental assessment on the wells that would be drilled to learn more about the area's hydrology. David Boyd is with the BLM. An environmental assessment will describe what the resources are out there, and then we describe the potential impacts that whatever proposed action could have on those resources, and then also what we're proposing is mitigation to eliminate or reduce those impacts. But the BLM almost decided not to do an environmental assessment, even after receiving 250 comments from entities such as Garfield County, the city of Glenwood, and owners of the local hot springs asking for one. The BLM told members of state Congress last month they likely wouldn't move forward. What ultimately changed their minds? Political pressure from Republican Congressman Scott Tipton. No one understands the hydrology of the area, so an abundance of caution needed to be exercised in drilling any test wells and making sure that uh, we're not going to be impacting the hot springs and ultimately the economy of the local community. Only after the pressure from Tipton, who represents the area, did the BLM announce they do the environmental assessment. Jeff Peterson from the Citizens Alliance, the group that's led the fight against the quarry expansion, was disappointed to learn that the added political push was needed. I'm glad they chose the right path, ultimately, but uh, you know, these are public lands and they are representing the public as a as a governmental agency. And so 
they should be listening to the public. The BLM says the environmental assessment will be finished early this year. It will decide if the drilling happens or not, but won't necessarily decide on the quarry expansion itself. I'm Michael Elizabeth Sackis, CPR News. And I'm Ryan Warner. Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with a blind veteran who says he's trying not to necessarily be inspiring, but to lead by example. You are with CPR News. CPR News wants to help voters set the agenda in this election year. I'm News Director Rachel Estabrook. Over the next several weeks, CPR reporters and editors are talking to people around the state about what you think is important, what you want the candidates to talk about, and what issues you need more information on in order to cast your votes next year. Go to the Colorado Public Radio Facebook page to find a meetup near you. Or take our survey at CPR.org slash Colorado 2020. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Soldier Steve Baskis of Montrose, Colorado, was driving an armored vehicle in Baghdad in 2008 when he was gravely injured. Shrapnel from an explosion cut through his optic nerves, blinding him. Since then, he has climbed some of the world's tallest mountains, kayaked the Grand Canyon, skydived, scuba-dived, and cycled. And he runs a nonprofit called Blind Endeavors, which helps other veterans do the same. We caught up with Steve in Crested Butte. He was mentoring blind skiers. He's also preparing for another epic climb. Hi, Steve. It's awesome to be here. I'm curious if you were this driven to be an uber-athlete before you lost your sight. <laughs> I was. But I don't know if it was athleticism or recreation that I was hoping to pursue, of course. Uh, I was interested in becoming a special operations soldier, an unconventional soldier. And I think that's driven some of the things that I've pursued as a a blind individual. Do you think you were seeking thrills as well, an adrenaline rush? (laughs) I think that's part of it. I really was interested in where our country was going with the war. I lived in New York when the on Long Island when the towers fell. And so my family has a, a lot of service history and I felt uh, obliged and interested in in serving and then uh, maybe building a foundation for life ahead. Do you miss being a soldier? I do. I do. Mountaineering, like climbing mountains, uh, brings that kind of back because there's a team, there's equipment, there's a mission, objectives along the way, and, you know, we have to return safely. So I, I find that in the things that I do all the time. How do you climb a mountain Without sight, help us understand what you rely on the team for and what you are able to rely on yourself for. My teammates, uh, usually I have a primary guy that leads in front of me. They could be just making noise with their footsteps, tapping things with trekking poles. I am hiking with trekking poles and feeling out the trail as I move. And I will, they're telescopic. I'll ditch them if it gets real steep and scramble on my hands and knees. Climbing is very tactile. So, And then occasionally I have a guide or someone behind me that'll just say, you know, Steve, stay right, uh, hold that form, because he he or she can see from behind. Do you ever fear falling off? Um, Every step I take, I'm checking. So not, no, not usually. Uh, uh, Kayaking like the Colorado River or Whitewater Rapids in in different parts of the country is a different story because... It's hard to control, uh, you know, it's dynamic. Water is dynamic. Yeah, let's talk more about the rafting because it occurs to me that that is also a very loud environment. You have the sound of the water. 
And so if you might be relying on someone's voice as you mountaineer, it's a very different condition on the water, isn't it? Very different. Um, I have rafted, but in this scenario uh, that I'm about to mention, it's I'm in a river kayak, solo, in my own boat. Again, there are two or three guides in their own river kayaks that are working uh, with me, kind of like the Blue Angels. <laughs> there's communication <laughs> There's communication, and, and, and they're really trying to tell, move me like a chess piece where I need to go on the river. But it's amazing the whitewater has got this high-frequency noise, and the human voice cuts over it really mm. well, actually. You've been blind for a dozen years now, but you say you've developed a new vision in that time. What do you mean when you say that? I feel like um, I still can imagine, you know, where I want to go and what I want to do and, and create a strategic plan to make that happen. And I always tell people I'm quite literally guided through life. So, you know, everything's a team effort, I, I feel and believe. And that goes back to being in the military. And so people have helped me along the way and make, make my dreams come true. And I've always wanted to see the world. And blindness is uh, not going to keep me from doing that. Your foundation focuses on helping others participate in these kinds of athletic events. Why are sports, especially challenging outdoor endeavors like mountain climbing and double black diamond skiing, why are they so important to you and do you think to others without sight? Well, I think moving is living. That's our mantra at Blind Endeavors Foundation. I think you can reestablish maybe a new normal uh, by exploring what's possible with the body that you have. So when people uh, go through a traumatic change and you then test yourself in different environments, it's, it gives the person the ability to forge strength, mental fortitude, strength, you know, physical strength, resilience, courage, determination. And that all plays a huge role in your daily life, even whether you're doing extreme things or mundane things. It sounds to me like that philosophy might have been born from a lack of movement. I mean, was there a time, perhaps just after you became blind, where you were paralyzed by fear? I still am at times. It's interesting staring into a dark world that's very still, stagnant. And I, I think a lot of people that are blind don't move enough, maybe. And it might be because of blindness. It might be because of a lot of reasons. Uh, but I definitely have tried to rebel and kind of fight against that feeling of, of being afraid to step out. You moved to Montrose two years ago for access to the outdoors and because it's a really tight-knit community for veterans. Uh, but one of the most recent challenges you took on was not on your list in the beginning. What was it like to train a wild Mustang? <laughs> it was uh, a good friend that introduced me to this idea He's a veteran as well, and it was remarkable. You know, uh, horses or animals, uh, they sense things too, and, and working with the animal, I think it could sense that I was, uh, I didn't move uh, as graceful or fluid as maybe it does or, or, or as a, a human. But we worked together, and I, I was learning the different techniques of working in a round pen and, and, and working with the horse to, to make it do the things desired when, when you're trying to move a horse around that's a thousand pounds, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's funny you so say that because I was just Googling what a horse weighs and it says anywhere between <laughs> 840 and 2,200 pounds. How do you deal with the fear of something that substantial moving potentially erratically 
and not being able to see it. Yeah, I spent a lot of time just sitting around the, the horse on the other side of the fence, just trying to create a relationship. And uh, maybe some people rush to do things. I, I'm not very uh, experienced in it. I'm new to this. Maybe I'll work with more horses in the future. But I, I developed that relationship and feeling, and I keep constant contact. And you can literally, f- you know, if someone's nervous, like uh, another human being, you, you can sense that and feel that. And you feel that in the animal. And when that happens, I, I step away. I get away. You know, and that's how we worked with the horse. We, we respected its space. And, and if it was scared... Uh, we, we, we left it. It's pretty simple. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're joined by Steve Baskus of Montrose, Colorado. He was blinded when there was an explosion while he was serving in Iraq in 2008. He uh, has a foundation called Blind Endeavors, which helps other veterans engage in the kinds of athletic activities that he does. And is there someone you've worked with at the foundation that you think stands out, a, a story you're particularly proud of, Steve? Oh, absolutely. We had a gentleman, I won't mention his name, but he uh, was out of shape but had loved cycling. And we do this big 200-mile-plus bike ride. He got really excited about it. He came on the trip once and it didn't do great but was very inspired by it and came back totally changed healthier and more fit and just destroyed the second trip and event mm-hmm. that we, we hosted. This is de- that, de- I mean, destroyed in a good way. <laughs> in a good way, yeah. <laughs> I imagine that this does take patience. I mean, I, I noticed when you were talking about the horse that as much as you might have wanted to jump on the horse, I guess literally and figuratively, immediately, it really might be a question of trying and trying again. I suppose that's true, really, for any athlete, isn't it? Well, I think blindness has taught me that, to be okay with failure, or whatever people interpret as quitting failure or, or frustrations. There, there's a lot of failures in my life. I, I talk a lot about the positive. Everybody hears the positive. But absolutely, there's been struggles. And I think the thing to remember is I look past that, and uh, I find a way to drive forward. And soldiers uh, are taught that, you know, or, or experienced that. In January, you plan to climb the tallest mountain in the southern hemisphere, Aconcagua, in the Argentine Andes. This will be your 25th mountain you've climbed since losing your sight. Will there be other blind climbers on that expedition? And just as, a, as an aside, have you yet met Eric Weinmeier, the famous blind athlete? I have. Okay. Eric Weinmeier, I've climbed with him uh, in Nepal near Mount Everest nice. on a different peak. Um, yes, there will be blind individuals uh, with us. Uh, we're hoping for a total of three, including myself. We're leaving definitely on January 12th. We'll be gone till February 4th, climbing uh, South America's tallest peak, Aconcagua. And uh, it's my fourth of the seven tallest peaks on the seven continents, uh, if, if we reach the summit. Uh, but the journey will be great no matter what. Cuisine, language, the hardship of, of working together and, and the camaraderie. Okay, you're participating in a maybe slightly less physically challenging endeavor. You've taken up drumming. Still pretty <laughs> pretty exhausting as, as a movement. You've been accepted to an online degree program at the Berklee College of Music in Boston. How will that challenge compare to your athletic feats, do you think? 
Well, when I'm home, I'm always challenging myself with technical things and computers and technology. Uh, going to school is, is very, very much a challenge for me. The patience of, of doing work at a much slower pace when my mind is going 200 miles an hour. Mm. So uh, in April of next year, I'll start courses uh, at Berkeley College of Music and in music production. And it's just another thing that, you know, music is something that really is important to me in life and, and audio. So This is fascinating. I think a lot of us can identify with the notion of our minds moving faster than our bodies. I think that's true as we age as well. How have you dealt with the frustration of that? Well, the physical injury of sight loss maybe accentuates this thought process, this fast thinking. You know, you're waiting in line with people and you don't know if they're moving forward and there's lack of communication and there's a lot of anxiety and and your your mind races. My injury, my disability makes me think about my thought process. And I try to tell myself to relax and I ask simple questions and and maybe these big things I pursue uh, help push the threshold, you know, high. What do you mean, ask simple questions? I try to ask myself when I'm freaking out or having a problem in my mind, and maybe people aren't aware of that. I'm, I have poker face on, but I am very aware. <laughs> I'm very aware that uh, I'm struggling with something. I try to calm myself and ask logical questions about why I'm feeling this way. And that's why I did it in the Army. You know, if we were on patrol or... Um, I'm trying to understand the situation uh, so that I can create a solution or steps to find an answer. I understand that you hold images in your mind uh, from back when you had sight. I have heard you call it a Rolodex of beautiful pictures. (laughs) Many that you remember, apparently, from looking at your father's National Geographic magazines as a kid. Do I have that right? That is correct. How, How often do you flip through the Rolodex of beautiful pictures? Yeah, Rolodex. That's uh, I think that dates dates me maybe. Um, <laughs> so just in I, case uh, people don't know, a Rolodex is how we used to keep track of phone numbers, and it sat on our desk, and it was a bunch of little cards. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I guess I'm saying I have this archive in my brain of images and experiences. Um, maybe some that I physically experienced, right, in life, and, and others that I, I witnessed through National Geographic magazines. And maybe there's a lot of people that look through Nat Geo magazines that never got to travel around the world. And uh, I really try to think of those images when I'm in a place where I've never stood and had the opportunity to use my eyes. And those come in handy and, and, and give me the ability to uh, imagine So let's say you're on a peak somewhere, you might conjure up an image you've seen years prior of a mountain. Oh, yeah. I remember being up the Kumbu Valley in Nepal uh, near Mount Everest, and people would take, took my cane, my trekking pole, and pointed it up to give me the idea, the sense of the immense mountain in front of me, Mm. and the other mountains too. And I would think of this mountain uh, that I saw in that geo. So, You know, I, I want to talk to you about one thing that I heard a disability rights advocate say once, which is when someone who has a disability does something exceptional or surprising, don't turn it into inspiration porn. Those were her words, inspiration <laughs> porn. And there's yeah. a, since she said that, I've seen inspiration porn in a lot of places, you know, where it's, 
look at this person with a disability and what they're able to achieve. And I'm, I'm willing to admit that there are aspects of this conversation that have taken that tone. Will you reflect yes. on inspiration porn for me? Yeah, I, um, it's an interesting term. Uh, there's so many phrases nowadays. Um, if you're in a struggling in a place and somehow you latch on to this idea of uh, inspiration or motivation, it can be so beneficial for you. I mean, we're, we're, we're so influenced by the good and the bad in the world. And I'm still thinking about it uh, to this day. How do people interpret and feel those things? And it's just dynamic, I think. It's a moment thing for yeah, everybody. Th- what, a, what a beautiful point. In other words, listen, there are going to be times where your story inspires. There'll be times when, for some, it doesn't. I suppose it's not your job necessarily to manage that. No. I try to lead by example. And I've never really tried to be inspiring. Mm. I've always wanted to live life and do great things. But I don't look at myself that way. A lot of these things are very challenging. And there are many struggles within climbing a mountain blind or kayaking. A lot of bad days, a lot of negative feelings. I think people focus on interesting things like the, the feet, a physical feet. But it is important to remember that I'm very proud of internal things that have allowed me to cope with the issue of being blind. And so inspiration is something that is interpreted or, or felt by others. And, and I, I have no control over that. Yes. Uh, Steve, it's been a delight to talk to you. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much. Athlete Steve Baskis of Montrose founded the Blind Endeavors Foundation, which helps wounded vets like himself stay active. The story now of a Denver artist whose tool is science. She's obsessed with things like radioactivity. CPR arts reporter Stephanie Wolf explains. Megan Gafford's Denver studio is filled with daisies, actual daisies that she grows. But these are different than the flowers you'd find at a shop. We have a conjoined twin where there's two blossoms connected. It's as if you had double vision looking at this one, with two flower heads growing from the same stem. Gafford points to another daisy with a center that's been stretched. Normally you'd have a circle, but now we have a shape that kind of feels like a caterpillar, where the petals are like the legs of the caterpillar. These are mutant daisies grown intentionally to be disfigured by exposing the seeds to radiation. It's all done for the sake of art. I'll use unsettling scientific materials, and I try to find ways to make them beautiful so that my viewers have a complicated experience where the beauty is pulling them in and then the unsettling part is pushing them away. Pushing them away because they're uncomfortable maybe even scared. Radiation really traumatized the world when the possibility of annihilation because of scientific exploration became a reality for the first time. Gafford says she reads obsessively about the history of the atomic age and the atom bomb. I think a lot about mortality. For myself, I've been in a a nasty motorcycle accident that almost took me out about seven years ago. These mutants are Gafford's third work involving radiation. One of those projects is called Subatomic Chorus. This is the sound of five machines she built that detect even trace amounts of radiation. Gafford got the idea for the DAISY project in the wake of the tsunami that caused a meltdown at a nuclear power plant in Fukushima in 2011. 
Later, she came across online photos of mutant daisies. The daisy itself is a kind of symbol of childhood innocence. And it reminded me of an infamous political campaign that Lyndon Johnson ran, I think in 1964, where a little girl is counting daisy petals in the field. Eight, nine. And then it switches to a voiceover counting down. Ten. Eight. And uh, at the end, a nuclear bomb goes off. I just got to thinking that this symbol of childhood innocence is kind of at the periphery of nuclear fear. And I thought that this would be a great opportunity to find something that's already beautiful, a flower, and then see if I couldn't recreate that. So I found a physicist who would help me irradiate some seeds, and I started growing my own mutants. That helper, who she didn't want to name, exposed the seeds to radiation with a machine used for treating cancer. Cranked up to a much higher setting than what any human would ever be exposed to. Still, that doesn't make the plants dangerous for her to work with. She takes the mutant daisies once they bloom and coats them with resin, preserving their lifelike shape. She lets them dry out and then encapsulates them inside a bell jar with another resin. The daisies become sepia tone. Even kind of magnifies the daisies a little bit. So the ones you see in the bell jar sculptures look slightly larger than they do before I encapsulate them. This could be the last series Gaffer does on radiation. She says she looks to science fiction to gauge people's anxieties. And lately, shows like HBO's Westworld are pulling Gafford's interest toward artificial intelligence and how AI might redefine what makes us human. I'm Stephanie Wolf, CPR News. The story now of a Christmas gift that keeps on giving. It came from a white elephant exchange. You know, it's supposed to be like funny prank things, stuff you've pulled out from storage. And so it was kind of a joke about who got it. It is a cookbook. And that voice is Roz Gallegos. She's an art teacher in Colorado Springs, but she grew up in the San Luis Valley where this cookbook comes from. It's titled Favorite Recipes from Antonito, as in the town of 780 people in southern Colorado. The cookbook was published by the Antonito High School class of 1986, apparently to raise money for a school trip. And then it's dedicated to all our parents throughout our school years. We have many memories of moments shared with you during family meals. We thank you for taking care, supporting, and loving us. Signed, the class of 1986. Gallegos didn't attend Antonito High. She grew up on a ranch not too far away, though, and somehow the cookbook found its way to her family. In it are many different recipes for this same dish, a dessert, actually, a cookie called a bizcochito. Seven recipes. It's not just one. It's Seven, so seven different families chiming in about bizcochitos. And if you don't know what a bizcochito is? It's kind of like if a snickerdoodle had anise, but it's so much more refined than a snickerdoodle. It's cinnamon, sugary, anise, shortbready. This is the cookie you have at a wedding. This is the cookie you have at a funeral, at a graduation. This is the cookie you have... To celebrate the birth of Christ, <laughs> this is the cookie. Gallegos posted a picture of this cookbook to a Facebook page called Forgotten Southern Colorado, where 12,000 or so members share memories of communities like Alamosa, Conejos, Center, and of course, Antonito. And her post about the cookbook exploded. People are apparently hungry for food that reminds them of a specific time and place. Because it's going home. So many people had to leave the valley for generations, for work, for education, uh, like to survive. 
And now that we have social media, we're connected again. And so when we bring these things up, it's you're going home through your food. You're connecting with like, oh, you're so-and-so's cousin. And, oh, you were at that funeral. And, oh, my gosh, remember this cake Miss Salazar made? And it's going home. Gallegos and her family have already tried the two recipes for sopapillas, the fried pastry. One is described as never fail. So, of course, you got to try those because it's a no fail. <laughs> and then I tried another one. And so it was like a taste-a-thon, like, are we trying uh, Mrs. Salazar's sopapillas or are we trying um, Mrs. De Herrera's sopapillas? It was, you know, because it's a whole family thing and, uh, and adjusted for altitude. And so we tried those and it was a... A tie. We couldn't decide whose were better. There is also a recipe for taco salad with French dressing and flavored Doritos. But it's really the desserts Roz Gallegos is taken by, like the piñon puffs, a pine nut sweet treat. Yes, but most of the pine nuts you get in bulk now are from China. And so if you were to get them locally, they are very seasonal. You do not get pine nuts every year. So this year they were in. Um, so everybody was chasing the piñon. Like you could not get piñon this side of La Vida Pass. But inside the valley, they had a bumper crop. So it was great to see a recipe for piñon puffs, which is cookies. So I'm really excited to do that because I, in the family, I'm the baker. Ross Gallegos of Colorado Springs sharing the bounty of a 1986 cookbook called Favorite Recipes from Antonito. It was a white elephant Christmas gift. At CPR.org, we've posted recipes for piñon puffs, one family's sopapillas, that taco salad I mentioned, and one of the seven bizcochito recipes. Now, Gallegos' discovery has put us on a mission to share other local Colorado cookbooks to bring these recipes and the stories behind them back to life. If you have a book like this, tweet me a photo of the cover at CPR Warner or email news at CPR.org. Submissions are already coming in like Shalom on the Range, Jewish traditions from Colorado kitchens. We'll share more in the coming weeks. Yes, without a doubt, just like an angel's kiss, it melts in your mouth. And I've told you all I can, there's nothing more to say. To explain a soap appeal would probably take all day. I like them so. And that's Colorado Matters for today from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us. Give me all you got I like them cold